1: We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine.
0: Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 322, and it is long overdue. We are back with another storytelling episode and a restaurant storytelling episode. I honestly couldn't even tell you the last one that we did. The 50th got all in the way, and now (laughs) we should be back on a normal schedule Because storytelling, I feel like now, is our bread and butter.
1: I mean, it's what we enjoy most. We like researching it. We like talking about it. And, I mean, today kind of fits with the 50th.
0: A little bit. It's in the name.
1: It is in the name.
0: We will be covering the storytelling of 50s Primetime Cafe in Disney's Hollywood Studios. And this episode was not only made possible, but actually chosen by our friends over on Patreon. So we put up a poll asking what we wanted to discuss next, what restaurant we wanted to do. And this was the restaurant that our patrons chose. So that just makes us more amped up to talk about it today. But if you want to participate in future polls and decisions on what the direction of the show is, we'd love to have you join us over there. $5 a month is what our Patreon is set at. And we hope that everyone over there existing and in the future always feels like you're getting a full value that surpasses the monetary investment, and we are so, so thankful for everybody over there. So if you want to check it out, you can go to patreon.com slash detour to Neverland. And, of course, that link is in the show notes as well. So 50s Primetime Cafe, before we get into it, this was a restaurant that my family went to, I think, every single Disney trip growing
1: up. Which is kind of bizarre for a lot of reasons. First off, this does seem like your family's kind of food But not necessarily your family's type of environment. But also, the very first time that I went to this restaurant was just here recently with you. Like, I was 27 years old the first time I went to this restaurant. So it's kind of crazy.
0: It is. I can't believe that your family ever went to MGM Studios or Hollywood Studios and didn't eat here. Where did you normally eat when you went to this park?
1: Well, that's the thing. And I even said it this weekend when we were in Hollywood Studios. This is the park that my family visited the least. I don't know if it's just because there wasn't much for us to do since the big kind of e-ticket attractions were things like the Tower of Terror. And me and my sister were not about to do Tower of Terror.
0: What about Backlot or Great Movie Ride? Would you do those?
1: I mean, yeah, I remember doing those. But honestly, not until probably middle school and i don't know where we ate i couldn't i honestly could not tell you what we ate or really any other kind of details
0: so this storytelling episode is going to take some weird turns and you might be saying to yourself if you're listening with someone else you might turn to them and say boy they are way off track and you're not wrong we're going to get <laughs> way off track but i promise you i'm going to bring it all back together at the end and we will Hopefully have a cohesive thought, and next time you experience 50's Primetime Cafe, you'll have a different perspective on it, or you'll just know some new things about it that will hopefully enhance your experience with it. So let's get started. Just for an overview, 50's Primetime Cafe was an opening day restaurant for, at the time, MGM Studios. Now, for the rest of this episode, I think we're going to refer to it as Hollywood Studios.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that just makes sense. I
0: might slip up. But but that's Okay. Yeah, so opening day restaurant. I thought it was interesting to look back at other opening day restaurants, including with this. So, Backlot Express, of course, still there. Hollywood and Vine, Hollywood Round Derby. Men and Bill's Dockside Diner, which is still there, but they dropped the Men and Bill's. So now it's just Dockside Diner. And I couldn't find an exact reason why. I think this happened around the time that it changed from MGM to Disney's Hollywood Studios. And so they most likely lost the rights to Men and Bill. They are from a comedy drama film from 1930. So it may have been just nobody knew who they were anymore, or whatever happened. But they dropped the name at one point, and so now it's just Dockside Diner, the studio catering company. Which this is where I also have memories eating growing up, going to this park. This was back near Backlot Tour. It was an all outdoor restaurant. It was under like a bunch of scaffolding and it of course looked like a uh studio like Backlot area <laughs> set up. It almost looked like uh Backlot Express more than Backlot Express looks like. But anyway, uh, and it was right next to the Honey I Shrunk the Kids playground. Do you remember that like, going to that?
1: I remember what it was, but that was also not a movie that I was crazy about. So I don't know if I spent much time. In a playground.
0: And then the last dining option that guests would have had for this opening year was the Soundstage Restaurant. And this is where we're going to take a turn. And I just want to pause because I don't know for the rest of time in any of these storytelling episodes if we are ever going to bring up Soundstage Restaurant again. And I think I have to take this opportunity to talk about it because it unlocked a memory for me, I think.
1: Oh, well, now I'm intrigued. I want to hear this.
0: I See, this is one of those, like, you read about it, and it's like, I think I was there, but I can't pinpoint it, and I don't know if my family would remember. But it was located where uh, back in Animation Courtyard, and currently this is where the Disney Junior Live on Stage now sits. So that's the general area that we're talking about. And it was a buffet restaurant, so soundstage restaurant, and then the bar that was attached to the lounge was called the Catwalk Bar, which was literally in the catwalks of this building. So if you think about how big that Disney Junior building is, it was high up there and it was like in the rafters
1: kind of thing. Yes. Yes. They would put people up there in a bar. Yes. That sounds like a very 90s 80s thing to do.
0: Yes, and I can't help but think like I really wish this was still there because that sounds amazing
1: i feel like you'd have to sign like a waiver or something
0: i mean i don't think it was that ridiculous but it was just a raised thing i I don't know are you picturing like no handlebar or like no railings or anything
1: (laughs) i don't know what i'm picturing i want to go into this disney junior stage now so i can look up and see what we're dealing with because i have a picture in my mind but i feel like it might be a little more dramatic than what It truly was.
0: And I think most of it's covered up or they've just completely gutted it. So I don't think there's really any remnants for it Um, still standing today. But it sounded like a really cool concept. And, of course, like everything else in MJM Studios at the time of this opening, it was supposed to be like a live set. So when it first opened, it was supposed to be props and the set from a movie named Big Business starring Bette Midler. We
1: talked about that a lot in our Backlot Tour episode.
0: I know. And that's what I just thought it was hilarious that Bette Midler will not go away every time we talk about the history of Hollywood Studios.
1: She was obviously a big deal.
0: Is she, though?
1: (laughs) To Hollywood, to the history of Hollywood Studios, I guess she is. Someone
0: who was making the decisions in MGM Studios was the biggest Bette Midler fan of all time because she was like a focal point in Backlot tour. She had nods in the great movie ride and now she shows up here and she had all kinds of other stuff in there too. But I just thought it was funny that Bette Midler pops up again in our talks. Um, But they only kept big business as the theme of this restaurant for a few years before it was eventually changed to beauty and the beast. Then they dropped that and they changed it to Aladdin. And there were characters off and on like, Uh, Belle and Beast would show up when it was Beauty and the Beast theme. But then when Aladdin came in, they really ramped up the characters. You would first start your meal meeting Jafar and Genie. And then further into your meal, you you would meet Pocahontas, Governor Radcliffe, and Miko. So a very strange combination.
1: Well, it doesn't seem like much of an Aladdin version. I would have expected you to say, you know, like Aladdin and Jasmine. No. Not them. They were busy elsewhere.
0: And not to spoil anybody's magic, but you can maybe imagine that Jafar and Jeannie were like doubling up and not coming back later. I don't know. Who knows? Excuse me, sir. No. 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 You don't accept that? No. Um, so this Soundstage restaurant stayed open until nineteen ninety-eight, where it then closed down to make way for the bear and the big blue house show. And then that eventually became the Disney Junior show. Do you remember the Bear in the Big Blue House show?
1: I mean, I remember watching it on the actual TV, but I never got to experience it in Hollywood Studios.
0: What a travesty.
1: It really is. I watched that show. It came on in the mornings, you know, like when you would get ready for school and everything. So I do feel a little gypped.
0: If we had a time machine, is that what you would choose to go back to?
1: Uh, Probably not, in all honesty. (laughs) But... It would be cool.
0: So one last thing to kind of finish this thought on this restaurant, and then we'll get back to 50s prime time, is that Catwalk Bar actually had a couple entrances of how you could get there. So you could get there through the restaurant of Soundstage, like in the lobby, you could take an elevator or stairs up. But then they also had an alternative entrance, which was kind of in between Soundstage and Hollywood Brown Derby. So if you're looking at the front of Brown Derby, Over to the left, which is normally the entrance that you would go into to check into the lounge, if you go in there, there are stairs and an elevator. So back in the day, that would have taken you to Catwalk Bar. But currently, now, that is how you get to Hollywood Studios Club 33 location, I'm pretty sure.
1: I'm picturing all of this, and I feel like that's got to be wrong. I was on board at first, and then the more I think about it, Brown Derby and Disney Junior live on stage are two very separate buildings. How are they connected in any way?
0: Well, you're seeing in its current form. I think at some point it did.
1: Huh? <laughs> I'm really not convinced. Can... No,
0: there is a picture. Here's here's. I wish this was a visual thing. There is a picture, and there was even signage for it right there, where you go in on the left side of Brown Derby. There was signage for Catwalk Bar. That was an entrance for it. There's a picture of Michael Jackson and Macaulay Culkin standing in that grassy area right now where sometimes the characters come out, and back behind them is Catwalk Bar. So it's a picture of Michael Jackson, Macaulay Culkin, and then Catwalk Bar back behind it.
1: Well, then I feel like Jeannie or someone must have, like, granted you a wish and transported you because I just do not see how this is possible.
0: How often do you look at the backside of that building, though?
1: But they're not connected.
0: I think they are.
1: We're going to have to make a field trip. Okay. I would have believed you more if you said it was in, like, the aerial where they do the Little Mermaid show.
0: That's across the entire courtyard.
1: So is, I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken. I've been wrong before.
0: Well, you're wrong on this time, I can tell you.
1: Okay, if you say so.
0: Uh, here, hold on. We're going to pause. I'm going to show Catherine this picture. And our patrons can read our show notes and see it there as well. You, you have seen the truth now, right?
1: I even looked up a park map. It does appear that I am wrong.
0: Those two buildings do connect on (laughs) on the back side?
1: The park map, it does appear. uh, So, yes.
0: Mm. It's the magic of illusion, I guess. They don't want you to think that those two buildings connect, but they very much so do.
1: I'm shocked.
0: Well, glad you could learn something today.
1: I learned something new today.
0: And how cool is that picture of Michael Jackson and Macaulay Culkin?
1: Why are they together? What are they doing? (laughs) They're just chilling together in a grassy field of Disney. I don't... Because they never worked together in, like, a movie, did they? Did I miss something?
0: I don't know, but you would also not be the go-to person for, like, 90s movies.
1: Well, no, but still.
0: He probably, like, was on the soundtrack for Home Alone or something.
1: Uh, quite possibly.
0: Okay, so that's kind of a brief history of dining in Hollywood Studios slash MGM Studios. Just so you kind of know the landscape of how this restaurant came to be and of what its competition was at the beginning of the park, and it's withstood the test of time. It's still a very popular restaurant. Next thing I want to talk about before we get into the actual storytelling of this restaurant is TV dinners, and the role of TV specifically in the 1950s, because I think it 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 gave me a brand new appreciation for all of this stuff and everything that the restaurant is trying to portray. So, it's pretty much widely accepted that frozen dinners as a concept were invented in 1923 by Clarence Birdseye. And so you see a lot of Birdseye food still.
1: Like frozen vegetables, yeah.
0: Yep. And at that time, they weren't very popular like as a full dinner of what something would get. In the late 1940s, they saw some more popularity, specifically in the Pittsburgh area. There were... Uh, A company called Albert and Meyer Bernstein, I think they were related, maybe brothers, who knows. Uh, But they started selling frozen dinners in this compartmentalized aluminum tray style, like you still kind of see now. But it was only in the Pittsburgh area because they couldn't figure out a way to ship them.
1: So they didn't have microwaves back then, did they?
0: When was the microwave invented?
1: I don't know. Because you can't put aluminum in a microwave.
0: That is a very good point. The first commercial microwave oven was tested in a Boston restaurant in 1947. And let's see. And the first one, the first domestic one was in 1955. So, yeah, this would have been.
1: So an oven frozen meal. Correct. That seems a little silly. (laughs) If I want a frozen dinner, I just want to put it in the microwave for three minutes. Well,
0: that's not what they did at the very (laughs) beginning of this. Uh, But that was significant because that's the first time that we saw these compartments. And that stuck around for a little while in the late 1940s. And then by the mid-1950s, in 1954, there was a salesman for Swanson Brothers. And he had the idea of how they could sell all of this leftover food that they had from their Thanksgiving sales. They had tons of turkey and stuffing and sweet potatoes and things that weren't enough. They were kind of like scraps that they couldn't sell on their own for Thanksgiving. So they wanted to find a way to package them all up and sell them as a full meal. And he actually got the idea from a flight that he was on because they served the food in that compartmentalized style in an aluminum tray. And so he went back to the Swanson brothers, pitched it to him. They loved the idea. So they used that flash freezing technique that they used in the 40s and in the 20s even back then and put them in the trays. And the first one that they sold had turkey, cornbread stuffing, peas and sweet potatoes. And they sold it for how much, you think? $2. 98 cents. Oh. And in the first year that they sold them, they sold 25 million of these brand new, what they were calling TV dinners. And the whole concept behind them, which I don't even, I couldn't find confirmation in my interpretation of It's kind of that they didn't even intend for it to be a TV dinner at first. It was more just, we've got leftover food and we need a way to sell it. And it maybe helps mom and dad not have to spend as much time cooking the food. So we'll sell these for cheap, pre-packaged, pre-portioned, ready to go. And then they quickly learned that the way that people were using these were they kind of took them out of a less formal setting and people would eat these in a living room, you know, gathered around the TV instead of at the dinner table.
1: There are so many things that come to mind with all of this. I mean, first off, kudos to them for not having food waste since that's still a problem that we have today. But also just the idea of like this is kind of when people started transitioning to the living room to eat I think is so interesting because it's almost been ingrained into our brains that not eating together at you know a family dinner table or kind of doing your own thing is more recent. Like, I feel like as millennials, that's what we get told a lot is, Oh, it's because everyone's so busy or it's your different schedules. And it's interesting to hear that it was also happening in the fifties. I mean, they were probably still eating more together as a family, but just not having the formal dinner setting. Correct. Yeah.
0: Our parents are blaming us for things that their parents did to them.
1: Exactly. What the heck?
0: (laughs) That's our, And that's our uh, gripe of the day as millennials. <laughs> but, you know, coming along with this new idea of mom and dad don't have to start dinner, whoever's cooking the meals in your family, maybe it's grandma, whoever it is, they don't have to start dinner at 3 or 4 o'clock to have it ready by 6 because they're cooking an entree and side dishes and all of these different things, just something that was quick And easy just made a lot of sense. And at the same time in our culture, what is working is that TV is becoming everything. Like people's schedules, this is where you start to see it, that their schedules are impacted by what is on TV and they do not want to miss their shows. And, you know, for us, we remember growing up in the 90s, if you missed your favorite TV show and you didn't set your VCR to record it, you you're out of luck. You missed it. You best catch a rerun somewhere. But that's even more so true back then. They didn't have any way to tape it or to DVR it or TiVo it. Remember when TiVo was popular?
1: I don't think my family ever had TiVo.
0: No, we didn't either. But I thought every one of my <laughs> friends who had it was like super rich.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say they they got whatever they wanted. <laughs> it was that friend. <laughs> yeah, TiVo.
0: But so that's when you'd see they'd say, okay, at. 8 o'clock comes on well, the original Mickey Mouse Club, or Lassie, or Leave It to Beaver, or Father Knows Best, or The Twilight Zone, or I Love Lucy. All of these shows that became just immensely popular in the 50s, it made perfect sense that then they said, well, hey, instead of spending an hour sitting at the dinner table, we can knock out two birds with one stone, and let's all just gather around, watch our TV shows, eat our dinner, and then we're free for the rest of the night.
1: Okay, this is also kind of way off topic. But since we are looking into the convenience of like getting something quickly to eat and not having to spend hours in the kitchen, when did fast food start?
0: How, how am I supposed to know that? You're supposed to start
1: looking it up. You're the one who always starts typing things. I'm interested in what the difference is between when these TV dinners started... So now in the late 50s or mid 50s is kind of what we're talking about.
0: The 1950s.
1: Okay. Oh, see it's I a, searched
0: when did fast food become popular and it says in the 1950s and 60s fast food chains epitomized by McDonald's revolutionized the restaurant industry and changed farming and the feud, food distribution business.
1: We did start to watch like a little documentary, is that what you would call it?
0: That was a movie.
1: Oh. <laughs> it was based on real events. We didn't get through it, is what I was going to say.
0: About McDonald's.
1: About McDonald's, yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that maybe plays hand in hand with this, that people want, they start valuing their time after work a lot differently around this time period. I can relate. You do? Yeah. So I did find, this is an interesting excerpt from ClassicTV.com. And this is how they kind of described the impact of television in the 1950s. It says, The fabulous 1950s are considered to be the golden age of television as watching TV became a new form of entertainment. As news and other broadcasts transitioned from radio to this new medium during the 50s, many were watching TV for the very first time. However, as TV programming expanded, by the end of the decade, most American families had their very own television set in their living room. Sitcoms and comedies were among the best shows like I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, and I Married Joan, earning high ratings. Later in the decade, westerns became more popular, shows as folks were watching series like Rawhide, Bonanza, and The Lone Ranger. This exciting decade certainly paved the way for the future of network television. So I thought that's, I mean, that's a pretty good, like high endorsement for how much this time period changed television and how American families consumed entertainment. And I found an interesting statistic. It said that at many points, 80% of the population would be watching the same shows nightly. And it was even attributed that this was kind of where the term water cooler talk came in because everybody would have went in the night after Leave it to Beaver aired, and all of them would have seen it. And so they would discuss that episode. It honestly made me think about WandaVision, where...
1: No, that's what I was going to say. (laughs) Bring it back. You know what this makes me think of, Brendan? WandaVision.
0: Where the internet has never come together in quite some time as much as we did for WandaVision, I don't think.
1: Well, no, but even just... What, when My connection to WandaVision, although I do agree with what you just said, is just that she was watching a lot of these same shows. Wasn't I Love Lucy one of her big shows that they were watching together as a family?
0: Yeah, and the Dick Van Dyke show.
1: That was it, yes. And it, it makes me think about that. I feel like that was portrayed so well, not only in those first two episodes where it was black and white in kind of the same style, but then later on... When we got to see that flashback and how that kind of molded her, I love it.
0: If they were allowed to, how cool would be a Wandavision overlay of fifties primetime be?
1: Oh my god, I would cry. Can could they do it? Because Wandavision is
0: no, because she's an Avenger.
1: Is she though? Yes. Some people say she's bad now. So could we just like <laughs> nix her, maybe? <laughs>
0: Um, and like, I do a little
1: spin-off kind of thing.
0: Vision is definitely an Avenger.
1: Are we sure, though? He's an android.
0: The contract reads, I'm pretty <laughs> sure, and this is not verbatim, but they can't do anything east of the Mississippi with any characters who are associated with the Avengers or the X-Men.
1: We can just move the Mississippi. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just so you can get WandaVision. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that's an... An interesting concept of that. Everybody's watching it at the same, like all of your neighbors are watching the same thing as you because there's not too many sitcoms and things like that on TV, but also there's so few channels, you know, you maybe only get five or six channels at this point. So you, you, and you know, the most popular shows. So everybody catches them and everybody goes in and talks about them uh, the next day.
1: What a time.
0: The last thing at work that I wanted to discuss about television during this time period that I think is portrayed in the restaurant pretty well. Specifically, so we mentioned some of those very popular TV shows. So things that come on in 50s primetime on the little TVs are the original Mickey Mouse Club, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, and Walt Disney is part of the original Mickey Mouse Club. Earrings, of course. So there, you do see clips of Walt.
1: And, and that then, was super cool.
0: It is super cool. And to kind of further uh, demonstrate that connection or, or why I think it's important that they show him in there is that this era is very important because the election of 1948. So this election was when uh, President Harry S. Truman was running for reelection. He did get re-elected. At that time, and at this point, he and Dewey, who was running against him, uh, were using TV instead of radio to campaign, which was a revolution that nobody had seen before. So, you a lot of these people would have grown up with like FDR's fireside chats and listening to everything news related through the radio, and then when that transitioned over. It was revolutionary, so they could run advertisements and they could take out time to speak directly to the Americans to try to persuade them to vote for them. And you just think about this time period in the late 40s and early 50s. Who's just sitting by and watching and thinking, I really need to get my name out there more?
1: Walt Disney.
0: Yeah.
1: It's got to be Walt.
0: And so this... I think you can draw a correlation between him seeing a president get reelected and attributes a lot of it to being able to be on TV. So people know what he looks like and they know what he sounds like beyond the radio static that they hear. And Walt starts to put things in motion as early as 1950 to get himself on TV because he saw how powerful that it could be. So that starts, he signed a deal with ABC and they did Christmas special. So in 1950, they did one hour in wonderland. And then in 1951, they did the Walt Disney Christmas show. And both of those paved the way for his regular series that began in 1954 as they prepared to open Disneyland. And it was a way that he could speak directly to people. He didn't have to go through the radio. He didn't have to go through the newspaper It was something that he was producing, starring in, writing, you know, all of the above. And it was a huge marketing success for him.
1: Well, and more importantly, I think something that you pointed out is that they weren't just listening to him, but now he was actually getting to showcase everything that was kind of in his brain. So he was hyping people up, giving them a preview, showing them how things work, you know, talking through the one that, I feel like stands out to everybody, at least to me, is like with the tiki bird, you know, where he's showing what it looks like. And he had all of his models that the Imagineers would make of, you know, the different lands and main street and everything like that. And it is interesting because Walt was very much a very proud American. He loved presidents and all of those things, halls, hall of presidents. Uh, but, it's interesting to kind of make that connection because I do see it. Like, I don't think that's a stretch.
0: Yeah, and I don't think he necessarily presented himself as a politician, but he did present himself as, this is me, this is me being honest, and this is the product that I have to offer, and I think you're going to appreciate this more if you can see it, and I can showcase it, and I can discuss the intricacies of it. And I think that's... I I think it's really cool that now you do get a little bitty snippet of that in Primetime Cafe.
1: So if we start to flip over to the actual storytelling of Primetime Cafe, now that we kind of have our basis, something that I feel like I don't even have in my notes, but I do think it deserves to be talked about, is that TV has a pretty big role here. It's even the sign for the restaurant. Is a TV. So it's kind of giving you a glimpse into what you're about to experience, which is pretty cool.
0: And then the name as well of Primetime, you know, this is what we're all sitting down for, and we're all gonna sit down and watch this together.
1: Oh, I didn't make that connection. <laughs> but I like that. So when you're eating at Primetime Cafe, it's more than just the food. And honestly, that's probably why my family never went there. Um, a lot of the food on the menu were things that my mom made for us weekly, (laughs) something that we would have been very familiar with. So to us, it probably just felt like, oh, if we're going on vacation, this isn't the kind of food that we're going to want to eat.
0: Pot roast.
1: Pot roast, meatloaf, you know, those kind of, we're going to talk about the menu a little bit later, but I do feel like the food plays into it, but it's not just the food that you're going to experience. It's the, you know, the atmosphere, the showmanship, the cast members who work there, So that's what we're going to walk through when it comes to the experience here. And I think it started, for me, as soon as I walked into the restaurant. It is, I mean, oh my gosh, it's got to be one of the best-themed restaurants on Disney property. I don't know if I can think of many others. A lot of people compare it to the Sci-Fi Diner just because that's kind of grand and over-the-top, too. This was a little... I don't want to call it understated because it's definitely not. I mean, it's very much in your face with what it's going for.
0: Yeah, I would just say that the details, I I wouldn't, yeah, I guess I'm saying the exact same thing you just said. (laughs) They're not hidden, but everything is so detailed that there's not one particular thing that really stands out along the way.
1: So just overall, it has that mid-century modern theme. So it's fitting into the 50s. It does really make you feel like you're being transported back in time. You get to see the different types of wallpaper. Um, you get to see the bright colors, the little small TV boxes that are everywhere. I think back to the little TVs that we had in our kitchen growing up. I know you had one too in your kitchen, Brendan. Yeah. Or just the TV that my grandma had that she literally just got rid of a few years ago. The box TV, um, bookshelves, antennas on it and everything. Oh, oh yeah, the whole thing, bookshelves, you got the knickknacks, you have a lot of wood paneling and wood accents, the big stand radio, which kind of goes with what Brendan was just talking about, and I feel like each space, like Brendan said, is so detailed and so unique, you are automatically looking at it, like not only are you in someone's house- but you're kind of getting a glimpse into like their life or each section has a different personality. So it could be like a different family member.
0: And something that I think is interesting is you can hear it from people around the tables. And I will be interested to see how this stands the test of time is almost everybody will say, oh, my grandma had that in her house or my great grandma had that style of clock or that style of TV, like you said, and everybody, it's kind of the hodgepodge of everybody's grandma's house. (laughs) You know, you grew up going to your grandma's house in Pennsylvania. I grew up to my grandma's house going in Tennessee. And, but there's still a lot of similarities. So I think their theming and the props that they were able to use to really capture like everyone's grandparents or great grandparents is really, really impressive.
1: It is. The only other thing, and I can't even believe that we're talking about this right now. The only other thing that makes me think about this would be like Cracker Barrel. How you get all the antiques and little family heirlooms all over the place. Now, that is obviously very niche. And Southern. And Southern. But it does give you a similar feel. Obviously, 50s Primetime Cafe is way cooler and much more over the top, but that was the best comparison I could make if you've never been to 50s Primetime Cafe. Then when you walk into the restaurant, you are kind of like you're entering into a house. You're greeted with like the living room, which would be the check-in station, the lobby, which was completely empty when we were in there, but also the tune-in lounge, which is a place where I feel like we definitely have to go back because they have like a really cool backdrop with all these vintage tvs and again you have the cool light fixtures the couches i mean it feels like you're in someone's living room
0: yeah i've seen some people compare it to like a dentist office but and that's kind of strangely accurate but, but it, it's
1: also a little insulting
0: it is but i do like i mean it, it's the what what do you even call that like an upholstered couch i think is where people are drawing that comparison
1: I have never gone to a dentist's office with an upholstered couch. Wow. Well, what kind of dentist office are people going to?
0: The ones with the upholstered couches.
1: <laughs> but then I feel like what really took my breath away was when they walked us into the dining room area because there are all sorts of little, how would you call it? Almost like pods that are set up to look like different kitchens. And I think this is what goes with what Brendan was saying, where each kitchen has its own knickknacks, its own TV, you know, dining table, cabinets, whatever it might be. Wallpaper. Wallpaper. And they're all so colorful and so well done. But it does, it can match to fit really any kitchen from the 50s. You know, it's not Northern, Southern, this, that, whatever. It's just, a fifties kitchen, and well, it's perfect
0: because all of our grandparents were ordering from like the same stores. They were all ordering from Sears you know, <laughs> to get that stuff in, or Sherwin Williams. You know, it's it it's funny how you see a lot of the same things pop up over and over again.
1: Lots of little cookie jars, or um, nods to Coca Cola, which would have been very important at the time, but also. And Coca-Cola is on the name, the restaurant signage, right?
0: I think so. So
1: does that mean at one point they were a sponsor? I don't know. Okay. Well, lots of little Coca-Cola references, which is pretty cool. Um, But I just feel like this is where you're really set up to truly believe that you're dining in someone's home. You are a big family. And I think the biggest piece of that— is your waitress or waiter because they're acting as either your aunt or your uncle who are serving you and bringing you the food so they reference the fact that mom is back in the kitchen making everything the other people who are sitting in the restaurant are all your cousins and you know they even refer to the other waiters and waitresses as you know aunt so and so or uncle so and so and I mean they're really selling it
0: They are. And this is where me and my brother had an issue growing up.
1: Because they take it very seriously. So to me, like with this immersive experience, I was trying to think of other cast members that really sell it. So most recently we talked about Space 220. I feel like they fall into that same category. Of course, Rise of the Resistance, sometimes Haunted Mansion, Tower of Terror,
0: Where they play a role in the story.
1: Where they really play a role. And I feel like this is a very pivotal role. Because anything that you read online, what I noticed every single time is that, you know, after they talked about the food and, you know, the atmosphere and all of those things, they talked a lot about their waitress or waiter, their aunt or their uncle. They either went all out or it was subpar and it makes a difference.
0: And I think some of it is up to you as well, To If you want the full experience, then there are certain ways that you can push that conversation to get the full experience. The other one that I would add to that list is Whispering Canyon and Trails End. Kind of give mm -hmm. you some of the same vibes. Here, it's more like it's, what would you call it? Like they are disciplining you
1: if you act up. They are. Well, there are rules. And our waitress... Our aunt was very clear on what those rules were. So no elbows on the table. You had to use your manners when you're ordering. I had to order first, and I made the mistake of saying, can I, instead of may I, and she was quick to point that out. Uh, you had to set the table before you were able to eat. You had to eat your veggies, although that's a little questionable when it comes to me. But they give you rules that you would expect to follow.
0: And no phones.
1: No phones. Yeah. You had to put your phones away. Again, rules that you would expect to follow if you were going to eat a meal at your grandma's house.
0: Yeah. And this is where COVID has changed a little bit of what they do. So, used to, if you broke the rules, they would make you get up and go stand in the corner and put your nose in the corner and be in timeout for a Which little while.
1: I think it's hysterical.
0: They don't ask anybody to get up anymore, but they will give you kind of verbal reprimands <laughs> if you break any of the rules. I would expect at some point we will see that come back,
1: which will be pretty funny. I'll I'll go back to see you get put in timeout.
0: Maybe you'll get put in timeout.
1: I am an angel.
0: You didn't order correctly.
1: That is true. So, what are some other funny things that have happened to you over the years? Because you're the one who has the long history. Of going to this restaurant.
0: I think I've tried to block most of them out from my childhood because I don't like attention. And so anytime anything would happen like that, either I would just flat out refuse, which was probably worse because then they just had it on. (laughs) But if I did, I would be like red as a tomato and just scared out of my mind.
1: Very embarrassed.
0: Yeah, so I think it's maybe a a better experience for kids who are more outgoing or kids who like attention, whereas I would rather just eat my meal. And now as an adult, I think it's very fun. But as a kid, it was, I don't want to say traumatizing, but it was. (laughs) I was scared going to eat there. Like anxious, I guess is a better word, going to eat there as a kid. And I think finally the last time I did the nose in the corner thing, they threatened to like make me go wash dishes, and I told my parents, like, never again. I'm not coming back here. And I don't think we ever did <laughs> oh my until gosh. we went together.
1: I guess the one that stands out to me is I am not a big vegetable eater. So I think I still had some green beans on my plate when everyone had finished. And they pointed that out, and I tried to hide them under my napkin, and our waitress was not going for it. Our aunt. Our aunt. She didn't like that I did not eat my vegetables.
0: Rightfully so. I try to get you to eat vegetables too.
1: And it just doesn't work. We talked about the menu just a little bit. I feel like let's go into some details as far as what they have. Because when I look at this menu, I would describe the food as feel-good, home-cooked, family-favorite kind of food. And you may or may not want that when you are in Orlando in the middle of the summer.
0: Well, last time we ate there, we mentioned we ate it during the summer, kind of summer. I think it was September. It was, hot. it was September at that point. So it was still hot. We thought, this is probably a good place that we come back to December through March.
1: Because it is quite filling. So a couple things on the menu include Aunt Liz's golden fried chicken, a sampling of mom's favorite recipes. Mom's Old Fashioned Pot Roast, Cousin Megan's Traditional Meatloaf, and then I'm trying to see if there's any other fun names, Caesar Salad or Cousin Harold's Vegetable Garden.
0: And I think most people go there, I think the most popular item is absolutely the fried chicken or the sampler. Uh, Meatloaf is also very popular as well. Here's my question. Does this place have the best fried chicken? on property. And if not, where does?
1: I mean the hoopty do review has some really good fried chicken. So I did the same
0: that you can get at Trails End.
1: Yes. I did actually get the sampling platter because I could not make up my mind. So I did try a little bit of everything. If I were to rank it, I thought the pot roast was my favorite. Brendan won't let me make pot roast because we ate it so much together. Again, my mom, mom's old-fashioned pot roast was made a lot in our household growing up. The meatloaf was probably my second favorite. And then the fried chicken. But not because it wasn't good. I just think the other two are things that I eat less often. Hmm. So it was a nice little something. It was like a treat.
0: So what's your fried chicken ranking?
1: I said hoop de doo Whatever they have there is my favorite.
0: Okay. Do you want to hear my ranking?
1: Eh. Sure.
0: Olivia's, number one. Grand Floridian Cafe, number two. 50s Primetime Cafe, number three.
1: But, like, mostly at the Grand Floridian Cafe, would you call that fried chicken? What else would it be? It doesn't have bones in it or anything.
0: I think it still counts. I mean, none of it's as good as Plaza Inn at Disneyland, but.
1: Well, that's true, too. I guess that ranks at the very, very top.
0: Yeah. Then we did not get dessert when we went, but they do have Dad's favorite chocolate peanut butter layered cake, which sounds amazing, a traditional warm apple crisp, which sounds awesome, and Mom's brownie, all to do there. And then the Tune-In Lounge has a lot of good drinks as well, and it's fun because they say that they're from Dad's liquor cabinet. <laughs>
1: Well, even I'm looking at the kids' menu too now. Grandpa's grilled chicken, Aunt Betty's chicken strips, or Grandma's macaroni and cheese. Aunt Betty. Aunt Betty. Does
0: everybody have an Aunt Betty?
1: Uh, no, do you?
0: No. But I feel like it's
1: on brand. It is on brand. But I feel like, you know, the food is simple, but it's very believable that mom is actually back there cooking it. Like, they're not trying to sell you that mom is making you a three course filet mignon meal or anything crazy, and it's really good.
0: Yeah, I think it's simple. It's what most of us would have eaten growing up. You know, at least if not at your house, maybe a friend's house. That that's what the mom or dad would be cooking, or grandma would be cooking. So I think it's nostalgic for pretty much everybody. What I would be curious of is how does it transfer to the next generation?
1: Well, vintage is kind of coming back, so they might just think it's cool. Quite possibly. Because I feel like if you were to make it like an, I don't know, 80s cafe, it's not (laughs) as cool. I'm just trying to think of other, you know, what's like the next big era. I don't know, 80s, 90s. I feel like that's not as cool.
0: Now, a 90s cafe with like goofy movie references and Lion King, now that would be cool.
1: For us, because that's what we grew up with. But I don't think it gives you as much theming, per se, as 50s Primetime Cafe. Like, it's just so unique. Like, in the 80s and 90s, people's kitchens did not look like this. Can you imagine how boring it would be if they tried to do just modern kitchens everywhere?
0: Yeah, I mean, 50s is the perfect time frame to do this, and it fits in with the rest of the park as well. It does. Yeah. So any other thoughts on 50s Primetime Cafe? I don't think so. I do just think it's cool to think about the significance of this era, what it did for entertainment, what it did for TV, what it meant to Walt Disney himself. And we hope keeping these topics in mind will enhance your next experience there and help you to enjoy 50s Primetime Cafe a little bit better. I think the food is good, but I think the experience is probably even better.
1: I mean, I definitely think the experience is the reason to go there.
0: Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love if you gave us an iTunes review. It's absolutely the best way to help the show grow. We love reading those. They make our day, and we would really, really appreciate it. So thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back on Thursday, and we hope you can join us then.